0: Welcome to Seeking Jesus, a podcast for Latter-day Saints focused on learning all we can about Jesus Christ. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash seeking Jesus. Have you ever read the Bible from start to finish? If you do, you'll notice there's a big gap in time between the Old and New Testaments. We end the Old Testament with the Jews having relative freedom under Persia and Scripture being written in Hebrew. When we flip the page to Matthew chapter 1, now Jews are ruled by Romans, there's a king named Herod, and Scripture is being written in Greek. What happened? If you're an average reader, you probably say, huh, that's weird, and then just keep reading. But doing so would be like looking at an image with a section in the middle taken out. You can still understand the image, but it's better if you can fill in the gaps. Let's take a few minutes to summarize the history of what happened between these two testaments. We'll focus on four main categories, the period of Hellenization, then the Maccabean revolt, the Hasmonean dynasty, and finally the Roman rule that was taking place through the Herodian dynasty. First, let's review a few basic timeline details. In 1000 BC, the United 12 tribes were being led by King David, but within two generations, this United Kingdom was divided into two. Israel, comprised of 10 tribes in the north, and Judah in the south. In about 720 BC, Assyria scattered the 10 tribes, and 130 years later, Babylon, the new superpower, destroyed Jerusalem and sent Jews into exile. In 539 BC, Persia defeated Babylon and allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. We covered all these details more deeply in previous classes. The Old Testament ends in approximately 400 BC, and 70 years later, the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, defeated Persia. Over the following centuries, Greece controlled the area around Jerusalem. Part of the Greek program was Hellenization, or the spreading of Greek culture. Imagine you lived in Jerusalem in 170 BC. Greeks have been in charge for a long time now, and Greek culture is increasingly commonplace. How would this make you feel as a faithful Jew? How much Greek culture would you tolerate before you felt it became too much? For example, would you let your children learn Greek, the new international language? Would you allow your kids to study Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, or Aristotle? What about entertainment? Your kids want to go see the latest tragedy showing at the Greek theater. Sometimes Greek plays can be risque. Will you let them attend? Would you let your kids go to the Greek gymnasium? That's where males wrestle naked with each other would you allow that? Would you start to worship Greek gods? Where would you draw the line? My guess is that each of us have different places where we would draw the line. And if a group of 50 of us were all in the same room, we would probably have a pretty wide spectrum of what would be too much Hellenization. This represents what was actually going on among Jews at the time. Some Jews embraced Hellenism. They wanted Greek culture. Others did not. This led to different sectarian groups, one of which we will focus on a little bit later today. Another reason why I think it's interesting to imagine how Jews in 170 BC might've felt about Hellenism is that it's similar to our own time. As a believing Latter-day Saint, how far am I willing, how far are you willing to go to accommodate the world around us? What parts of culture am I willing to embrace? And at what point do I say, this is too far for me as a believer in Christ? Hellenization comes to the foreground in the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. These books are part of the Apocrypha. If you want to learn more about the Apocrypha, go to the course website. 1st Maccabees begins with the reign of Antiochus IV, a Greek king. The author of 1st Maccabees tells us that in 170 BC, some Jews, who he refers to as renegades, came out of Israel and misled many, saying, let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us. For since we separated from them, many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them. And some of the people eagerly went to the king who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. At this time, it wasn't that the king was forcing people to adopt Greek practices. Some of the Jewish people wanted to adopt those practices. So as we read in 1st Maccabees, they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the Holy Covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. For some people adopting Greek practices led them to forsake their covenants. Over the next couple of years, the Greek King Antiochus IV began to force Jews to adopt Greek culture, whether they wanted to or not. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that the Greeks took over Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple. This, of course, would have been completely sacrilegious to the Jews. First Maccabees continues, The books of the law that the Greeks found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. According to the decree, they put to death the women who had their children circumcised. They hung the infants from their mother's necks. This was a brutal time of oppression. At this time, there was a Jew named Mattathias who moved from Jerusalem and settled in Moda'in. Moda'in was a nearby suburb of Jerusalem. He saw the blasphemies being committed in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, these blasphemies weren't just happening at the capital city of Jerusalem. The officers of in the IV were going to the surrounding towns to enforce the apostasy. Eventually, 1st Maccabees tells us, they came to the town of Moda'in to make them offer a pagan sacrifice. Many from Israel came to them, and Mattathias and his sons were assembled. Imagine the scene. The Greek officials are there. They want somebody to offer a pagan sacrifice, and all the townspeople have gathered to see what's going to happen. The king's officials said to Mattathias, You are a leader, honored and great in this town, and supported by sons and brothers. Now be the first to come and do what the king commands, as all the Gentiles and the people of Judah and those who are left in Jerusalem have done. Then you and your sons will be numbered among the friends of the king, and you and your sons will be honored with silver and gold and many gifts. What would you do? This is a serious peer pressure situation. We read, Mattathias answered and said in a loud voice, Even if all the nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to obey his commandments, every one of them abandoning the religion of their ancestors, I and my sons and my brothers will continue to live by the covenant of our ancestors. Far be it from us to desert the law and the ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. That's a big mic drop by Mattathias, but that left an opening for somebody else to be the first to offer sacrifice and be honored. So a random Jewish guy raised his hand and said, hey, pick me. I'll do the sacrifice because he wanted the Greeks to honor him. Mattathias did not like that. Maccabee says, when Mattathias saw this Jewish person offering to do the pagan sacrifice, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officers who was forcing them to sacrifice and he tore down the altar. This event kicks off what is called the Maccabean revolt, a period of guerrilla warfare where Mattathias and his sons fought off Greek rule and established Jewish freedom. Mattathias had several sons, one of whom was named Judas. Judas's nickname was Maccabee, which means the hammer, indicating that he was a powerful fighter against the Greek forces. Collectively, the term Maccabees refers to Mattathias and his sons. Over the following years, the Jews, led by the Maccabees, took control of Jerusalem. Later sources tell us that when the Maccabees retook the temple, there was a miracle surrounding the oil at the temple. That's the story behind Hanukkah. The Maccabean revolt eventually led to Jewish independence. For the first time since Babylonian exile, roughly 450 years, the Jews were finally ruled by Jews. Now you might be wondering to yourself, okay, this is lots of fun and I love Mattathias, but this class is supposed to be about Jesus. So why are we studying this history? What's the point? There are lots of connections between Jesus and the things we've been discussing. For example, Hanukkah is actually mentioned in the gospel according to John in john chapter 10 we read it was at jerusalem the feast of the dedication and it was winter and jesus walked in the temple in solomon's porch hanukkah was called the feast of dedication because the temple was dedicated or purified when the maccabees regained control of it it's interesting that at this feast jesus describes himself as the one whom the father hath sanctified or in other words made pure Just as the Maccabees had purified the temple, so too the Father had purified Jesus. In a previous class, we talked about how Jesus is highlighted in elements of the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover. We see the same thing here with Hanukkah. There's another connection to Christ. Do you remember how during the process of Hellenization, groups of Jews reacted in different ways? Some embraced Greek culture, while others rejected it. As far as we can tell, it was during this time period that the group known as the Pharisees came into being. The word Pharisee has a meaning related to being set apart or separated from. Back in Leviticus, the Lord said, Sanctify yourselves therefore, and be ye holy. The Pharisees took this commandment very seriously. They developed additional traditions to make sure that they did not break Jewish laws. We'll explore this in detail in a later class, but let me briefly show you a few examples of Jesus interacting with Pharisees around these traditions. The Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Or The Pharisee said unto Jesus, Behold, why do your disciples on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? Or When the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eat with publicans and sinners, they said, How is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? We'll explore these episodes in a future class, but for now, I want to highlight that just like modern Christians have different opinions about how much modern culture can be tolerated, so too did these ancient Jews. The process of Hellenization led to different sectarian groups, one of which was the Pharisees. Understanding their context can help us as we read the Gospels. Sometimes we think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. Actually, many Pharisees were devoted to God and wanted to be zealous in keeping the commandments. As we will see, some Pharisees were hypocrites and missed the mark. But when we look at why they missed the mark in the context of previous generations resistance to Hellenization, we can better understand their perspective. So what happened after the Maccabean revolt? The following generation of rulers is known as the Hasmoneans based on a family name and they ruled for roughly a hundred years. To be clear, it's all the same family line. But Mattathias and his sons are known as the Maccabees, and the next generation is called the Hasmoneans. During the 100 years of Hasmonean rule, the geography they controlled increased substantially. At first, they controlled just a few areas around Jerusalem. But over time, they conquered territories around the Sea of Galilee. This, of course, will have important implications for the life of Jesus Christ, who grew up in Galilee. The Hasmoneans even conquered lands in the south that traditionally had been possessed by their rivals. This is interesting because the grandfather of Herod the Great lived in this territory and converted to Judaism. You may have heard that the Jewish people didn't like Herod the Great because he wasn't ethnically Jewish. That's correct, and the Hasmonean rule explains this. The grandfather of Herod the Great was part of a nation that was conquered by the Hasmoneans. The original intent of the Maccabees was to resist Hellenization. But, as sometimes happens, within a generation or two, that original intent was lost. And the later Hasmoneans began to embrace Hellenization. Eventually, a civil war broke out amongst different Hasmonean leaders. These Hasmoneans appeared to the superpower of the day, Rome. Roman influence had been growing in the eastern Mediterranean, and they had recently taken control of Syria, just north of Judea. The Roman general, Pompey, in effect settled the civil war by having Rome take over. So once again, the Jews lost their independence and were now ruled by a superpower this time, Rome. In 40 AD, a shrewd politician known as Herod the Great was pronounced King of the Jews by the Roman Senate. It's important to note that while the Hasmoneans were independent rulers, Herod was a client king. His boss was Rome. Herod the Great is an important figure in the New Testament. He dramatically remodeled the temple complex. When we hear of Jesus teaching in the temple, it's not that he's actually teaching inside the temple, he's on a large open-air platform, a huge area built by Herod, that surrounds the temple. This is the same Herod who is visited by the wise men, which we'll talk about in our next class. We're probably about at the point where our brains are getting saturated with too much historical information. We just have one more piece to cover, and that's what happens after Herod dies. Herod the Great died when Jesus was about three years old. His kingdom was divided among his children. One son, Herod Antipas, took over the region of Galilee and east of the Jordan River. This is important for Christ's life because Jesus grew up in Galilee. This Herod Antipas is the same person that killed John the Baptist. In addition, if you remember Christ's trial before Pilate, when Pilate learned that Jesus was from Galilee, he sent Jesus to Herod Antipas to be judged. But Herod Antipas didn't pronounce a sentence and sent him back to Pilate. Which brings up another question, where does Pilate come from? Well, after Herod the Great died, the region surrounding Jerusalem was given to his son Archelaus. Archelaus did a terrible job as a leader, so after a few years, Rome said, get this guy out of here. Archelaus was banished, and Rome appointed a Roman governor to oversee the region. Several different governors were appointed in the ensuing decades, the most famous, of course, being Pilate. That explains why Jesus will be on trial and crucified under the direction of Pilate, a Roman authority. Even though Rome was powerful, it didn't have enough power to micromanage every detail across its vast territory. Consequently, Rome depended on local leaders to keep the peace. An important group of these local leaders in Jerusalem are known as the Sadducees. In general, they were responsible for the temple and were part of the wealthy elite in Jerusalem. In essence, they collaborated with Rome to keep the peace. Many of the temple priests were Sadducees. And as we will see, priests played a major role in the arrest and trial of Jesus. I hope that this overview of history has been intellectually interesting but even more importantly that it helps us see connections to Jesus as we learn more about groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees and individuals like Herod the Great and Pilate. We've been focused on political history, but let's shift gears and talk a little bit about religious history, specifically Jewish expectations for the Messiah. We've grown up hearing about Jesus and you know, the storyline about his death and resurrection. But if we went back to the first century and we were looking for a Messiah, would we have different expectations? Just like if you were to go up to 10 people in your ward and say, when do you think the second coming will happen? And what will it be like? You'll probably get lots of different responses. If you were to go to different Jewish people in the first century and say, what's the Messiah going to be like? You would also receive a variety of responses. That's important to remember. Sometimes we say the Jews believed X as though they were a monolithic group. In reality, there were different sectarian groups amongst the Jews. Not everyone had the same beliefs. Many, but not all, first century Jews believed the Messiah would be worshipped by all people. The Messiah would be a king. He would judge the wicked and overthrow Israel's foreign enemies, and his kingdom would be everlasting. These beliefs were based on ancient Jewish writings, some of which are found in the Old Testament. For example, the book of Numbers says, There shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and smite the corners of Moab and Edom shall be a possession. Remember that Moab and Edom were traditionally enemies to Israel. So this is saying that a scepter, a rising star will cut off Israel's foes. Israel shall do valiantly out of Jacob. Shall he come that shall have dominion and he shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. This verse sounds like a powerful conquering individual will come. Or consider Daniel chapter 7. This is a chapter in Daniel which we sometimes skip, but it's a great chapter. Daniel has a vision of four terrible beasts, and the reader's thinking, who's going to be able to conquer these terrible beasts? Daniel saw in the night visions one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Again, this sounds like a very powerful figure, right? That's what many people were expecting. So with that background in mind, we can better understand why some of Jesus' followers were confused about his identity. For example, the disciples were walking with Christ one day and Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. How did the disciples respond? Do we read, and it came to pass that the disciples said, yea, Lord, this is what has been prophesied. I'll be right there with you. Not at all. We read, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. This is kind of an ironic situation, right? Jesus is pouring out his heart, saying, I'm going to die for you. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Oh, actually, Jesus, you're a little bit off base. This is not your future. Maybe maybe you haven't read Numbers 24 or Daniel chapter 7. You're going to be a reigning king, not a suffering man. Peter and the other disciples didn't understand that Christ would be a suffering messiah. Here's another example. On the day of Christ's resurrection, two disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. They were depressed because Jesus had died. Well, the resurrected Jesus appeared to them, but his true identity was hidden. They didn't recognize him. Jesus approached the two disciples and said, why do you guys look so sad? They said, haven't you heard what's going on? Jesus responds, well, what's been happening? And the disciples said, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. Did you notice the past tense? We trusted past tense. We had hoped he was the one, but we were wrong because he was crucified. So he must not have been the Messiah. Then Jesus said to them, "O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." As we begin reading the New Testament, we won't be surprised when we see controversy about who Jesus is. Some people will ask him plainly, are you the Messiah? Jesus was in fact the Messiah, although at least from some perspectives, he didn't match up with the expectation of the Jewish Messiah. Let's look at one final topic to prepare us for our study of the New Testament. The majority of our future classes will be spent in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Since we'll spend so much time there, let's do a brief overview of these books. Matthew, Mark, and Luke together are known as the synoptic gospels because they have the same basic stories and sequence. The word synoptic there means to see together. Now, if two research papers were word for word identical in some sections, what would you naturally conclude? That somebody copied from somebody else. We have a similar situation with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because of the word-for-word connections, there's very likely a literary relationship between the synoptic gospels. Now, today we're worried about plagiarism, but that was not an ancient concern. It does raise the question though, which of the gospel accounts was written first and who copied from whom? If you studied this topic in graduate school, you could probably take a whole semester course looking at this one issue that we'll cover in two minutes. I acknowledge that there are lots of nuances and different possibilities, but it's clear, for example, that Luke is aware of other gospel accounts. He says, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things, which are most surely believed among us, it seemed good to me also to write unto thee in order. In other words, Luke is saying, there's lots of written versions of Jesus's life, and I'm going to write a really good account for you. Many scholars suggest that there are four sources for the synoptic gospels. This is a hypothesis, so it's not necessarily correct, but it's something interesting to think about. Mark is often believed to be the first gospel written. It's the shortest, and it seems like both Matthew and Luke draw from it. There's a second source known as Q, which stands for the German word quell, meaning source. This refers to times where Matthew and Luke are word for word the same, but there's no basis for what they're saying in Mark. Q is a hypothetical document that no longer exists today, and it's possible that it never existed. But scholars hypothesize that Matthew and Luke both had access to a collection of sayings about Jesus, Q, that they were drawing from as they wrote their gospel accounts. Now, there are also sections of Matthew that are unique to Matthew, and there are sections of Luke that are unique to Luke. So we've got Mark as a source, Q as a hypothetical source, Matthew as a source for material unique to Matthew, and Luke as a source for material unique to Luke. That's a little bit about the synoptics. Now, John is completely different. If you look at Mark, only 7% of Mark is unique to Mark, not found in the other gospel accounts. In contrast, 92% of John is unique. Many stories like Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman at the well are only found in John. And even when all four gospels have the same story, like with the triumphal entry, John often shares different information about the event. That means that if you could only read two gospel accounts, you would want to read one of the synoptic accounts and John. With that background in mind, consider this question. How should we read the gospels? There are different approaches and I want to briefly mention three. The first one is known as a harmony. Just like in music, harmony blends notes together. A harmony of gospel accounts is a blending of the four gospels into one story. We often do this with the birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew talks about the wise men, Luke talks about the shepherd, but we blend it together into one story. This has been happening for centuries. An early Christian named Haitian harmonized the four gospel accounts into one around 150 AD. So this approach has been around for a while. We often do a harmony in Sunday school or seminary and Jesus the Christ by elder James E. Talmadge is written as a harmony. A pro of this approach is that it makes things simpler. You've just got one story to read. There's also a con. Imagine that you have four beautiful paintings. Each painting has a different meaning and message, but you don't have room in your house for all four paintings, so you think, let's just take the best part of each painting and we'll merge them together into one beautiful portrait. Well, that doesn't work. We wouldn't do that with art, so why would we do it with literature? We have to realize that by harmonizing, we will lose part of the message that Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is trying to portray. That takes us to a second approach reading sequentially. This means we will read all of Matthew, then all of Mark, all of Luke, and all of John. A pro to this approach is that we will see the theme, the storyline, the interconnections that are within one book, and we'll make some great connections that we would otherwise miss. For example, if we look only at the gospel according to Luke, the very first words that we hear Jesus say are, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? This takes place when he is 12 years old in the temple. The very last words the mortal Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Both at the beginning and end of Christ's mortal life, there's a focus on his Father. That's a powerful connection and one we might miss if we were harmonizing. We'll find it if we carefully read Luke from front to back. A con to this approach is that it can be repetitive. If you read all of Matthew and then turn and read all of Mark, you're going to get a lot of repetition and might think, I just read this in Matthew. So that's potentially frustrating. That takes us to a third approach. And honestly, this is one of my favorites. It's reading the gospels in a synopsis. The word synopsis is very similar to synoptic. They have the same root meaning of being taken together. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you do a synopsis study, you're also including John, and you're doing a careful study of a section of scripture to see what each of these gospel accounts says about this specific topic. You're not trying to blend them together into one account. You're looking carefully for similarities and differences in each one. For example, consider what happened in Gethsemane. There are about 20 verses in Matthew, 20 verses in Mark, 15 in Luke, and 11 in John that talk about Christ's experience in Gethsemane. These accounts have some very significant differences. If we carefully study them closely, we will find unique details that can enrich our understanding of what took place in Gethsemane. The con to this approach is that it takes some work. You've got to line up the accounts. You've got to be an active reader. In this case, the con is also the pro, because when you're an active reader, you're more likely to find valuable insights. Doing a synopsis study forces you to become a more active reader and makes it more likely that you'll learn new things. By the way, I've created a series of documents that have different sections of scriptures formatted to do a synopsis study. You can see them on the course website. As we conclude our discussion today, I want to state that when it comes to these three approaches, harmony, sequential, and synopsis, it's not that one is better than the other. It's just good for us to know the strengths and weaknesses of each approach and then utilize their respective strengths to make our New Testament study awesome. I hope the background material we've studied today has prepared us to learn more about Jesus as we start exploring the gospel accounts. In our next class, we will focus on the birth of Christ, as well as his baptism and temptations in the wilderness. Thank you for listening today. We hope that you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It makes a difference. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltonii.com slash seeking Jesus. We hope to see you there.